read the Bible, but to meditate on it, to think about it, and that's a major purpose of our gathering together, to encourage one another in that purpose. We're going to be studying Ecclesiastes over the next few months, in fact, and we're going to be introducing ourselves to that book uh, this morning. We read the first chapter, or the part of the first chapter we're going to be looking at this morning, but uh, I want, therefore, to read actually the very end of the book, because uh, the first 11 verses are a partner to the last six verses, I think it is, that um, are also a comment, an editorial comment by the person who uh, uh, finally um, put down the, the thoughts and musings of this teacher. Verse 8, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, of much study, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything hidden, whether it's good or evil. Well, let's ask that God to help us to understand this book, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, you would help us to understand the words that we read this morning, that you would be with us, that you would help us to see the, the, the logic, the power, the passion of what this teacher has to tell us. And that as uh, that, those truths settle on our hearts, Lord, pray that you would make us people who more urgently want to know you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard once about a Christian man who was on a fishing holiday with, a, with quite a large group of friends. And uh, early on Sunday morning, he and a couple of others in the group who were Christians rolled out of bed early and tiptoed out of the chalet to find a church, leaving their uh, pagan friends happily sleeping. As they walked away, one of the Christians muttered, wouldn't it be awful if they were right? I think probably uh, most of us, if not all of us, from time to time have thought that, perhaps especially on the first Sunday of the new year, as we drag ourselves away from our war warm homes to church. We all of us suffer from doubts and struggles. Many of those struggles we dare not mention. 
Funnily enough, the Bible doesn't seem to have such qualms. A disconcerting frankness, actually. It, it uh, records people's personal doubts and struggles and lapses. And I'm very grateful for that. Because then I know the Bible's telling the truth. As I grow older, I actually become more impatient with, with plastic saints, with Christians who tell me they are always rejoicing, always trusting, always living victoriously over sin, because I know that they're lying. I know that through pastoral experience, and I know that because uh, God tells me that in his basic textbook, the Bible. He says true believers struggle. That little um, Sunday morning quip, wouldn't it be awful if it turned out they were right, may have been no more than a light-hearted joke, but it's actually one of the most explosive thoughts that anyone could ever have. It's a struggle that many, many people have as well. And it is the dominant thought of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an extraordinary book because it's so unorthodox. There are times when it seems to laugh, actually, at some of the most precious Christian truths. Some people in history have doubted whether it should be in the Bible, but there it has firmly stayed. What, what Ecclesiastes does is it takes that, uh, that Sunday morning muttered doubt and it shouts it from the rooftops for everyone to hear. And the author actually doesn't deny that God exists. He's not formally an atheist, but he says God is distant. I see God as uninvolved in his creation, he says. Psalm 19 may say the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. But, he says, when I look at the sky, I see only the sun. And under that sun, he says, a phrase he uses again and again, under the sun... I don't find knowledge, I find confusion. I don't hear speech, I hear silence. I don't see the glory of God, I see chaos. Ecclesiastes functions actually as a sort of antidote to the book that stands in the Bible before it, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is actually packed full of wisdom about how God's world works. And it's a great book in many ways. It tells us that God uh, is uh, uh, a God of order, God of justice, a God who will not be mocked. But actually, when you read Proverbs, frankly, sometimes it feels a little smug. Ecclesiastes is a reaction to that. It's a, it's a book actually designed to wipe the smile off the faces of religious know-it-alls. What um, private eye is to worthy journalism, what um, spitting image was and Rory Bremner is to a political commentary, so Ecclesiastes is to complacent religiosity. 
Even actually the, the, uh, the claimed authorship of this book is probably satirical. Proverbs was written by Solomon, King David's son. And at first glance, at the beginning of this book, it seems that this book too is written by Solomon. He's described at the, uh, at the beginning as uh, son of David, king of Jerusalem. But on close, closer examination, I think the evidence is against that. Complete, the, the, the book has a completely different feel from anything else that we know of Solomon for a start. And interestingly, the author is never quite named. He always remains hidden, anonymous, behind this title that um, the NIV translates, the teacher, the one who puts things together. I think it seems most likely that uh, this description of himself as being like Solomon is, is, is a device like um, those satirical diaries that they have in private eye or those spoof uh, documentaries that they have on the television sometimes. We're not expected to really think this is Solomon. It's irony, but it's devastatingly powerful irony. Because what he's saying out loud is, Solomon's public wisdom may have been that this world is an ordered, understandable place, carefully overseen by a just and loving God, but I'm Solomon's dark side. I think Solomon's private thoughts. I think the things Solomon never dared write down. I see the things that Solomon closed his eyes to. And I say there is plenty of evidence that this world is actually a disordered, confusing place with a distant, uninvolved God. Teacher's talking the language of the world we live in, isn't he? For the whole of my lifetime, our society has been self-consciously rejecting the Bible's official wisdom. Almost every aspect of, of conventional Christian understanding of uh, God and of the world has been substantially challenged over the last hundred years. It began with the intellectuals, but since the uh, student revolution, revolutions of the 1960s, it's increasingly become society's dominant view. The old wisdom, the standard wisdom, the trite wisdom. But this is how the world, way the world works. Is out. And the teacher here points out ruthlessly that those skeptics actually have plenty of evidence on their side. Smug, simplistic Christian dogmas don't actually stand up very well in the real world. The teacher says we must face up to it. Those Sunday slumbering fishermen might just be right. But, wouldn't it be awful? That's what he's saying. Wouldn't it be awful? Not awful because the Christians will have wasted their time. Awful in a far more profound way. Awful. Because if only we could see it, it actually robs the world of everything which is of ultimate value. The conclusion that begins and ends this book 
is actually thunderingly powerful for the world we live in. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The teacher does what our, our world rarely dares to do. He takes his, his disconcerting observations about the world and he, he, he pushes and probes and pursues them absolutely relentlessly to their end point. And as such, you see, he's saying some vital things to our world today because he walks alongside us in our skepticism and he shows us where the road that we have chosen as a society is heading. We've actually been very, very slow in realizing where that road is going. Funnily enough, I think it's actually been the younger generation today who've seen that most clearly. Parents who were reared in the optimism of the, of the 1960s and the 1970s find the apathy of their young adult and teenage children very, very difficult to understand. The last thing, you see, that those radical rebels of the, of the 1960s thought they would see over the next 40 years was young people becoming markedly more depressed, even suicidal. But that's actually what has happened, as a number of, uh, of important studies in the last 10 years have shown. Depression and attempted and even actual suicide amongst young people has increased dramatically the last two generations. Well, there were some of a previous generation who saw that, that meaninglessness with terrible clarity. For instance, the last entry in Kenneth Williams' diary before uh, he took a fatal overdose was, oh, what's the bloody point? The philosopher Bertrand Russell saw this world with, with the teacher's eyes as well. Russell was an outspoken atheist, and in a famous essay called uh, A Free Man's Worship, written nearly a hundred years ago in 1903, he said this, that man's origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire of heroism no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all labours of the ages, all the devotion and inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined for extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things... If not quite beyond dispute, I yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. My copy of... Um, Russell's book is actually second-hand. It was originally bought by someone in the 1950s. And they were so incensed by that passage that they wrote in the margin, surely not. 
You see, the teacher of Ecclesiastes says, Amen. You've seen it, Bertrand. Not actually because he's finally committed to Bertrand Russell's despair, but because he says we must see where our sceptical thoughts are leading us. If we are to turn back, to look at God and this world again with mature, honest faith. So very briefly this morning, we're going to to dip into this book by way of of introduction. The first 11 verses of the book have been written as an introduction by another hand, as I said, and uh, similarly those last verses as well. Those are the ones we're going to look at because those are the... Those are the introduction and the conclusion to what this teacher has to tell us that we'll be looking at over the next uh, number of weeks. What are his editorial comments? First of all, we are introduced to the teacher's observations in verses 1 to 7. A major source of his pessimism is that we don't seem to be able to do anything in this world of lasting significance. There is no gain to us personally for a start. Verse 3, what does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? We labour and toil all of our lives, and for what? Remember, that's the conclusion of Shakespeare's Macbeth, that life is full of sound and fury signifying nothing. In fact, says the teacher, this lack of progress seems to be built into the very fabric of the world. Verse 4, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains the same forever. He could mean generations of people come and go there, or he might just mean that everything goes in endless cycles. That's certainly the thought of the next verse, verse 5. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises again. Or literally, the sun pants back to where it rises. It's exhausted, it's out of breath. It is weary with this never-ending cycle of rising in the east and setting in the west. In the next uh, uh, verse, something new happens. The original doesn't start with the, the wind there. That rather robs it, um, of it of its power. It starts like this. It goes to the north, it goes around to the south, round and round it goes. And ah, we say, here's something that's broken out of the sun's tireless east-west cycle all the time. What is it? The wind. The wind may break out in new directions, but it actually never does anything new. It's ever returning on its course. Well, 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 perhaps, says another voice, I can spot you something in nature which has progress and purpose about it. Here's something, a river. Surely that is a witness to to progress, isn't it? Constantly flowing in the same direction, ever travelling onwards. Verse 7, all streams flow into the sea. Yet the sea is never full. 
teacher didn't know about the rain cycle but we, uh, that we know about, but he knew this. The sea is not like a bath. It never fills up. It never overflows. In fact, it always stays at the same height. What looks like progress is not. In one sense, you know, our, mo our modern world denies that pessimism. After all, it's the, it's the age of computers and cloning and high-tech weaponry, isn't it? The teacher's not ignoring the fact that progress of some sort may occur. Rather, he is dwelling on an observation which is actually very relevant to our own day. Whatever, in whatever ways the world may move on, it really just gives a slightly new shape to the same old problems. <coughs> What we learn about history, learn from history, is that we never learn from history. September the 11th showed us that. We, uh, we may have moved beyond the, the horrors of the trenches of the First World War or the, or the uh, a major multinational conflict of the Second World War, but our world is not secure and peaceful. We just have uh, war and insecurity in 21st century clothes. The wearying cycle of the sun, the ever-changing but always the same blowing of the wind, the illusory progress of rivers is the way of the world. It's the way that the world works. You tell me God loves, loves you and has a wonderful purpose for your life. You tell me God is working his wonderful purposes out in history, says the teacher. And I say, prove it. Not what I see. And the teacher moves on to his conclusion. His conclusion is, I'm tired of this. Verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The sun is weary, panting round its course, and so am I. The more I look at things, actually, the less I'm satisfied, he says. The eye never has enough of seeing. The more I think about things and discuss things, the less I am satisfied with what I learn, he says. Nor the ear its fill of hearing. I feel like I, I am searching with increasing desperation and increasing hunger. And what do I find, verse 9? What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Then he imagines that he hears a cry. A cry that might fill him with hope. Look, this is something new. But then he says, I look closely and I see it was here already long ago. Verse 10. It was here before our time. We only get excited and think something is new, he says, because we have no sense of history. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. People think that the midlife crisis that so often hits, um, hits men 
and makes them ask whether they're doing anything really worthwhile in their life. They think that's a blip. People think that the, uh, the pessimism and questioning about the value of, uh, of, of our lives that very often hits people when they retire is just a sad end to an otherwise productive life. The teacher says those are the moments when we see the truth. We could only face up to it. We are like the sun, wearyingly plodding a predetermined path again and again. We are like the wind, ever going in new directions and just going round and round. We are like rivers, apparently flowing strongly and unstoppably in a purposeful direction. And when we finally get to the sea, he says, we find we make not a hype of a difference. That's life under the sun. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Jack Higgins, the best-selling author, was once asked what it was like to get to the top in his profession. He said, when you get to the top, there is nothing there. But our teacher has a deeper purpose in this book than simply to drive us to despair. He does want us to see the reality of that despair in this world. But though he rarely expresses it, partly I think at least because he himself hasn't really seen in any more than a hazy way the, the, the way out of this despairing world, he wants, he has a deepest purpose for us. And that's the purpose that uh, uh, the editor uh, picks up on at the end of the book. So turn with me to, uh, to chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. He wants to teach us with what he's saying. But more than that, says uh, our editor, he wants to goad us. Verse 10, the teacher find, searched to find just the right words. What he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. A goad was a long stick with sharp points used to uh, uh, slap the, uh, the, the backsides of cattle with to, to, uh, to goad them in activity, into activity. Painful for those cattle. It drew blood. And that's what this book is designed to do to us, says our editor. It's a wake-up call. It's designed to stop us just gently slumbering, to stop us just muttering quietly to ourselves, wouldn't it be awful if they were right, and actually to see what that statement means.
He says, don't, don't let that thought just be a nagging thought at the back of your mind as you plod your way to church for another week. He says, look at it, expose it, examine it, see the terrible darkness that that thought reveals. And he says to those happy, sleeping atheists, those who think that God uh, has very little to do with this world, he says to them, wake up and think about the implications of what you believe. They are utterly desperate. Isn't it time to think again? Verse 13. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good and evil. In one sense, those words actually come out of the blue. There really is not much basis for them. They come up a number of times in Ecclesiastes. Why should we fear God? Why should we have confidence that God will bring everything to judgment when actually he spent an enormous amount of his time saying that there is only injustice and the absence of God in this world? Only when we get to the New Testament do we begin to have a solid basis on which, uh, to see the solid basis on which that statement stands. Because the New Testament makes the bold claim that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus lives eternally, and that Jesus will return in power to judge the living and the dead, just as our editor says at the end. It tells us that this world will made, be made entirely new by the resurrection of Jesus, and that that makes all the difference. It turns this world from a place of despair to a place of hope. Conrad Adenauer, one of the great political architects of post-war Germany, was once sitting next to the evangelist, Billy Graham. And he asked him, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Billy Graham answered that he did. And there was a long silence. Finally, Adenauer said, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. The teacher didn't see Christ's resurrection. But he knew that without it, there is no hope. I have to come back over the next few weeks to see how he expands that. Let's pray.
perhaps on this first Sunday of the new year, you need to confess to God that you've been sleeping. Not really looking at the world with the searing clarity of this teaching. you need to ask him right now to to open your eyes. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that it is painful to be goaded in this way. That we have a sense that the teacher wants to wound in order for you to heal. So Lord, we, we pray that you will give us the courage now and over the next number of weeks Feel the pain that he is expressing. And to see the hope that he longed for from a distance. Deliver us, Lord. We here who are believers, deliver us from trite, simplistic, superficial faith that really dare not look at the reality of the world. Those of us here who don't yet know you as you are, Lord, pray that you would deliver us from walking blindfold down a road to despair and destruction. Please help us then, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. To the life of the church. So what about us then? How do we work out those principles in our modern day? How do we give priority to real need? How do we remember... Uh, the priority of family responsibilities? How do we avoid encouraging irresponsibility? How do we encourage responsibility? In our, in our modern day, where, where the welfare state is decaying distinctly, and where families are breaking up, there is more and more, and there are more and more people who have that real need, who are really deserted. I talk to people who are uh, uh, responsible, one way or another, for going into homes in this area. They will say, you wouldn't believe what goes on behind those doors. You wouldn't believe the loneliness. You wouldn't believe the destitution. And some of those people come into contact with the church. Some of them actually are searching for Christ. If the church has 
no expectation, no policy to try to give real help to those people, then they will not see Christ. They will not find Christ. And maybe when we meet God face to face, he will hold us at least partly responsible. That's uh, one of the reasons why we want pastoral groups this week to discuss, we've given you uh, a lot more notes than usual, to discuss actually how this passage and uh, the rest of the, uh, the Bible may be guiding us in terms of uh, having some sort of policy about how we care for the needy. I'm absolutely certain that we will need to uh, maintain and provide a lot of freedom for spontaneous acts of generosity. Seems uh, uh, to me that uh, most of Jesus' actions were, were simply unplanned, unpremeditated acts of generosity that he couldn't systematically repeat always and every time. But he took the opportunity as people came along to help them. But should there be uh, some provision in the church budget to help people? Should we, uh, as a church, recognize that some people have particular uh, gifts of helping one another? More than anything else, it seems to me, we need, as a church, the mind of Christ on this. And that's what we want, as leaders, you to be praying for. We need to be people who can live with that hard-nosed reality that the poor will always be with us, as Jesus did. We'll always be ready to turn aside to outcasts and invite them to our table, as Jesus taught. More than anything else, we need the Spirit of Christ in us. I'll tell you for myself, frankly, I would rather be labelled as a fool or wasting my time and energy and resources on the, on the poor and the needy can be labelled as callous and uncaring. Because more than that, I am convinced that the reputation of Jesus Christ in this area depends at least in part on our ability to live out Jesus' words. Love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love.